Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. But I strongly believe that while the finance sector, the investment sector, is of course not responsible for solving modern slavery, it will not be solved without the finance and investor sector because they are vital to making sure that companies are doing the right things as the major shareholders. That was Fiona Reynolds, Chief Executive Officer of the Principles for Responsible Investment. Hi, I'm Shalini Samuel, Financial Sector Engagement Manager at Mindaru Foundation's WalkFree in partnership with FAST. Today, we talk about how the money we earn passes through our heavily intermediated global financial system to make us a profit. As we track the path of our dollar, we see what happens when it enters the hands of asset owners, our pension and superannuation funds and moves into the hands of asset management companies to whom funds are outsourced to be managed. We see how funds are pooled and put to work by institutional investors interested in addressing modern slavery risk in their investment decision-making. What does modern slavery have to do with our pensions? What is the risk? To whom is it a risk? Is it a risk to us and our retirement profits? Or is it a risk to the people whose labour may be exploited to provide goods and services for the brands invested in? Is it a combination of the two? If we accept that modern slavery is a risk, how do the managers of our money deal with it? Come with us on an exploration into institutional investor engagements on modern slavery and human trafficking risk. We will hear from experts in the field including environmental, social and governance, as well as responsible investment practitioners, about regional efforts to combat modern slavery through engagement with the companies they invest in. So Fiona, how does our money get tainted by modern slavery? What happens basically, to put it simply, is that as a big institutional investor managing, you know, billions and billions of dollars, I am invested in the major listed companies in the world. I'm also probably invested in some infrastructure funds. I'm probably invested in private equity as well. And those companies, particularly in the listed space, are the companies that produce the world's food. They're the companies that produce all of our clothes, and they outsource their work into supply chains where they are outsourced again, outsourced again, often into developing countries. And it's usually within those supply chains that we come into contact with the whole issue of modern slavery and human trafficking. It's not an issue that's limited to developing countries. That would be wrong. It does happen in developed countries as well. But this is often where we find the problem. What can and should investors do about this? Well, a key thing is to actually ask questions. So to the companies that they are major shareholders of, they need to ask them about human trafficking and modern slavery. They need to ask them about 
the work that they do in looking within their supply chains. They need to ask for data. They need to ask for evidence. What happens a lot is that companies say, we don't have any problems. But if you are a major multinational corporation working in food, working in agriculture, working in retail, it's very difficult to believe that you do not have some form of modern slavery or human trafficking there. Therefore, when a company finds these incidents, it's really about what are they doing to fix it. It's not to say that we should automatically then say you're a bad company we should divest from you. In actual fact, we want companies to find incidents of modern slavery and human trafficking, and then we want them to deal with it. So ask questions, have a due diligence process, make sure that you're collecting the data and that you are asking for evidence. That starts to get companies' attention to know that their shareholders are interested in these issues. And of course, in many countries now, there is you know, mandatory reporting around these issues. So you have to ask questions anyway. But it doesn't mean that in countries where there isn't mandatory reporting that you shouldn't be asking the questions. It shouldn't just be driven by regulation. Turning now to Asia, where best available research tells us there is a high prevalence of supply chain labour rights concerns. How might investors take modern day slavery and human trafficking risks into account in their decision making? Where and how do these risks fit into investment processes? Hi, my name is Tan Jinhui, and I'm the Global Head of Stewardship and Sustainable Investing at Fidelity, based in Singapore. My role comprises two parts. The first part is stewardship. This refers to the practice of active ownership by institutional investors in the companies that we invest in. So how are we, as owners of these businesses, helping to promote the kinds of responsible corporate behaviours that companies need to adopt? The second part is sustainable investing. So sustainable investing is a long-term investment strategy that seeks to integrate environmental, social, and governance considerations, otherwise known as ESG, into its investment process. Examples of each of ESG, so on the E side, you would have climate change, which is clearly the existential issue of our age, but increasingly biodiversity, waste and pollution, deforestation, and resource depletion as well. On the S side, this stands for social. So this refers to working conditions, to human rights, including slavery and child labor, to local communities, including indigenous communities. Uh, It refers to conflict regions, health and safety, and also diversity and inclusion. So broadly, that societal factor. And finally, on the G side, governance. This is traditionally the focus of asset managers. This refers to issues like executive pay, bribery and corruption, minority shareholder rights, board structure and composition. Could you shed some light on ESG in Asia? How has it changed over time? So the landscape of ESG in Asia is evolving very rapidly. And one of the reasons for that is because regulators across the region are recognizing that ESG is an important way that they can accelerate the development of their capital markets. And so you see a lot of top-down priorities placed on ESG from the country's regional regulators, whether that's net zero ambitions in China, Japan, and South Korea, or new stewardship codes or corporate governance codes or mandatory ESG disclosure from companies. 
At the same time, we're seeing that on the investor level, the mindset and perceptions of Asian investors towards ESG investing are changing. And a lot of this is because of the wide sharing of successful ESG investing experiences by the more developed markets. However, I think it's important to, to, to be cognizant that Asia is not one region. It is not easy to aggregate ESG information across Asia or to examine ESG as a collective form across Asia because the region's priorities are so different, because of different reporting requirements, because of different local language issues. So I think, I think when, we, when we take an approach to ESG in Asia, we shouldn't just regard this as being a single block. How is the current global pandemic shaping this work in the region? So COVID-19 has acted as a remarkable accelerant the underlying structural factors that were driving ESG anyway. And one of those key reasons, I think, for that accelerant is that COVID has reminded us, as a society, we really are all in this together. We, as a world, are facing a global health pandemic that has enormous economic and societal repercussions. And there is a role for government, there is a role for private corporations, there is a role for institutional investors to come together to help to solve some of these some of these bigger issues. And we've seen some very positive responses from companies through this process. So, for example, we've seen companies extend their supplier terms, giving their suppliers more assurance around the products that they're prepared to take over a longer time, time frame. We've seen companies increase the accessibility of their products to end users. And we've seen companies, in some cases, change entire business models to meet the immediate needs such as the production of hand sanitizers or face masks or testing equipment. Ultimately, where this is all leading to is a reshaping of capitalism itself, a focus from only being about the returns that are generated to shareholders and a focus now much more on the role that corporations have to play with regard to their broader set of stakeholders. So how they're responding to their employees, their communities in which they operate, their regulators, their suppliers and their customers. Is there an example of a live modern slavery and human trafficking engagement issue that you could share with our listeners? So, you know, I think one of the one of the reminders of this pandemic is that the more vulnerable amongst us have been significantly more disproportionately impacted by this pandemic because they do not have the kinds of protections that others enjoy. But at the same time, those more vulnerable workers are also the most essential workers in our global supply chains. So one example of that would be seafarers. According to estimates from the International Transport Federation, 400,000 seafarers are now aboard cargo ships and are not able to disembark because of COVID-related restrictions in their ports. And the ship owners are not able to conduct crew changes in the way in which they would have done so in the past. These seafarers are now on board for coming onto, in some cases, 17, 18, or even 19 months on board ships without access to their families, without access to all of the comforts that we would enjoy working seven day a week, 14 hour a day shifts. The international safety guidelines recommend that only 11 months at a maximum be allowed for seafarers. And most seafarers work on fixed term contracts and their contracts have now expired. So this is, has become in effect a forced labor issue. At Fidelity, we are engaging with all the companies that we hold within the entire shipping value chain. So this includes seafarers, but it also includes charterers, so big retailers, oil and gas companies that use ships to move their cargoes, and includes airlines, which are the principal form of repatriation 
of these seafarers. And we're engaging in them with try to, which to try to create a multilateral solution that can enable a quicker and more efficient change of these crews. Allied to that, uh, encouraging governments to give workers the essential designation that they clearly need as essential workers. 90% of world trade moves by ships. None of us would be sitting here enjoying the food, the energy, the security that we have without the work of the seafarers. And our concern is that the longer this issue is allowed to persist, the more well, clearly it's a humanitarian crisis for the seafarers themselves, presenting greater, greater risks to their health and safety, but it also presents greater risks to the cargoes that they are carrying, whether they be flammable cargoes like oil or perishable cargoes like food. And so this, in our view, creates serious financial risks to world global supply chains. Truly a global supply chain issue. Let's now travel across the Pacific Ocean to New Zealand, where we will hear from Anne-Marie O'Connor, Head of Responsible Investment at New Zealand Superannuation Fund. Anne-Marie oversees the integration of ESG in the fund's portfolios. Now, the reason that we are, have a strong focus on responsible investment is that we believe that it is value additive, that it'll be better for our portfolio over the long term, both in terms of reducing risk and adding value. We are a very long-term investor, so we have a long horizon when we look at matters such as social issues and climate change, for example. We also, within our governing legislation, have a requirement for an ethical investment policy, which is more commonly known these days as responsible investment. And we also have a requirement around utilising our voting rights. So the issue of what we is now called modern slavery has been central to responsible investment since I've been involved in the industry, which is since the early 90s. However, I think the focus there was on child labour and also slave labour, but in a way looking at it as if it almost didn't exist. So over time, we now know that modern slavery is alive and kicking in the world. And there have been certain reports along the way that have really grabbed the attention of mainstream investors. What is your view on engagements on modern slavery issues? Well, you can see engagement in a number of different ways. We see engagement as an effective tool in the listed market and coming together with others is really important. I think also in, in terms of your engagement with companies and with other investors that you may wish to encourage to collaborate on this issue is that modern slavery is a mispricing of the real labour and effort that goes into producing a good and therefore, what you're doing is you're setting up a systemic mispricing in the market. So you're not really fully costing for something that is legally required. We're also not costing for carbon risk, for example, and those sorts of risks. But with modern slavery, you're actually building in an illegal system into your valuations of companies. Part of the driver to that is that when consumers think that something is produced for a certain price, it resets the bar. And so you have this downward spiral amongst the retail sector, for example, if it was there, or the construction sector, or the agricultural sector for labour costs. 
So I think that's something that investors understand and can turn their mind to. And really, there's not that much work that I've seen done on what is the true cost of a product and service. And is there a way of red flagging that through the system? Of course, there's very practical ways. We know from real life situations and feedback, the sectors that are at risk, how modern slavery can enter the supply chain. But I think that for investors, that actually produces also an economic and business case that we really need to understand that as a way of seeing where modern slavery might exist in the system. So that's one thing I think on the public markets. On engagement, you can also obviously engage with your other investors if you're co-investing in a project or asset class. You can integrate requirements on modern slavery or on human rights risk into your shareholder agreements with other investors. You can integrate these requirements into your manager mandates and integrated into your engagement with your managers. So if you've got a private equity manager, an emerging markets manager, you might want to engage with them to integrate this into what they're doing. So what are some of the most useful resources that you found as an investor that has helped you to actually integrate modern slavery risks into your investment processes? Well, I would have to say that the blueprint for mobilising finance against slavery and trafficking, which was the report that came out of the Liechtenstein Initiative, the commission I was involved in to try and get the finance sector to really wake up to the risks and mobilise action amongst the finance sector on modern slavery. And this was very useful because it stepped through a number of goals in how to address the risks and what to do with them from both an investor perspective, it brought banking sector together and it brought the finance sector together. And the most useful thing really for me was also just to see how many other resources and initiatives there are. So you have the Bali process, which is both a business and governmental initiative. You've got in my own region, Walk Free Foundation, which has been doing a fantastic job. You've got your responsible investment associations, both globally and regionally involved. So I would advise any investor to really look at your own region to see who you can link into there. And it also helps to look at all the different players. So all of these sorts of resources will show you who are all the different players in the field. So regardless of the type of asset that you're investing in, be it real estate, be it public equity, be it infrastructure, then there's tools there that will allow you to engage with those companies in a sort of more sophisticated way. Taking a step back for a moment, we've heard use of the phrase ethics in investments. We've heard the term responsible investment. What do these mean in practice? For a brief explainer of the different ways that institutional investors might account for key global challenges in their decision-making, let's hear from Kate Turner, Responsible Investment Specialist at First Centia Investors. 
I like to think of environmental, social and corporate governance or ESG investing, which is what you're referring to, as falling into one of three buckets. And I say three buckets, but they're not mutually exclusive and one is definitely not better than the other. They often have different purposes or can be used together. So the first bucket is screening, and this could be either negative or positive screening. So negative screening involves the exclusion of either companies or sectors from a portfolio, for example, not investing in companies that derive revenue from fossil fuels or tobacco. Or on the flip side, positive screening involves actively investing more in companies that provide solutions. So examples could be renewable energy or energy efficiency. So often, but not always, screening is done for ethical reasons, but there are other, other reasons to use screening as well. The second bucket is ESG integration. So this is the explicit consideration of ESG issues as part of financial analysis. And there are many different ways of doing this and no right or wrong way, but one could include integrating ESG into a DCF model or developing an ESG quality score as examples. And often investors use this as a risk management tool. So they see ESG as a risk or an opportunity and they want to factor that into their financial analysis. And then the third bucket is impact investing. So this includes investments that are looking for an environmental and a social return alongside a financial return. So an example could be an affordable housing project. It has goals to generate returns, but it also has goals of providing affordable housing to a certain number of people. Now, to assist us in delving deeper into modern slavery and human trafficking integration and practice, we have Mons Carlson to provide insight into assessing, engaging on, and mitigating the impacts of this complex and multifaceted issue. So I head up EEC Research at Osbill Investment Management Limited. So we're a Sydney-based fund manager, part owned by New York Life, and we have about $12 billion Australian dollars in assets under management. We mainly invest in Australian equities, and we're a bit unique in the way that we have invested in an in-house team of ESG specialists. And that team of ESG specialists sits within the investment team, and we integrate ESG in our investment process. So we do proprietary ESG research. For me, the starting point comes straight back to the heart of it, which is earning sustainability. So I've always maintained that if a business model relies on underpaid workers, weak regulation, weak enforcement of regulation, or even illegal activities like slavery, earnings simply cannot be sustainable over time. And secondly, on earnings revisions, brands are key assets, particularly for consumer-facing companies, and issues in the supply chain can lead to revenue loss, and more importantly, brand damage from labor rights issues can be very costly and time-consuming to restore. As an example, I still get questions about Nike, because when people hear the word sweatshop, they refer to Nike, even though those events are going back all, all the way to the early 1990s. And brand damage can also have an internal impact on companies, including management distraction. It can have an impact on staff and morale, etc. So there's both external and internal impacts there. So rather than framing an issue like slavery and trafficking as an ethical issue only, we see it as a financial issue. And I think that's one of the key points I really want to make. I have talked about earnings a fair bit, but it's not just about earnings either. So we think the way a company deals with labor rights issues including issues like modern slavery and trafficking and how they deal with those issues, that can actually be a bit a bit of a proxy for management quality. So put differently, if you speak to a company and if the management of that company doesn't know the key risks in their supply chain, or even worse, they might not even understand their supply chain full stop, it begs the question, what else should we as investors be concerned about? 
Could you provide an example of where you've seen positive outcomes from modern slavery and human trafficking engagement activities? As an ESD researcher, I have been fortunate to have been on a number of ESD field trips, visiting suppliers and factories in, in the garment industry for, for many years, including in China, Bangladesh, Cambodia, and Thailand. And having done that, you can identify some of the risks at an early stage. For instance, I, I flagged the risks of doing business in Bangladesh back in 2011, 2012, so long before the Rana Plaza building collapse took place. And of course, when you go to factories and you speak to suppliers, you never get to see the worst factories because they know you're coming, so you get to see the best ones. But even so, by doing that, you can see what's working, you can see what's best in class and best practice, and you can also learn from leading companies. And then you can use that knowledge to help improve Australian companies when you engage with them. And sometimes that takes time, but we have seen a number of companies take up ideas that I've been speaking to them about for five or six years. It's a slow-moving beast, but we think by addressing a certain points, companies at least mitigate the risk of having modern slavery in their supply chains. In your experience, how has investor consciousness of the issue of modern slavery and human trafficking changed over time? There have been a number of catalysts along the way. I think the Rana Plaza building collapse in, in 2013 was definitely an eye-opener for many investors who hadn't really thought about those issues before. And then, of course, the Modern Slavery Act here in Australia is a game-changer because investors also need to look at their own portfolios and understand the risks they're taking there. I would say that we as investors collectively, we could do much more and we need to be, become more sophisticated in the engagements we have with companies. And I also think the success of engagements really comes down to how you engage as an investor. Because we, we can either just point the finger or we can just be more constructive and try to be part of a solution by encouraging best practice on risk management. And personally, I think that's a really, really important point to make. And by being more consultative and constructive in your, in your engagements, that can lead to out, outcomes. And I, I think the Modern Slavery Act and its reporting requirements for investors to report on the risk of modern slavery portfolio has been a major catalyst for that increase in investor attention. And there's also more collaboration between investors. And I think that makes perfect sense because slavery is a, well, it's a, it's a systemic issue. And systemic issues require multi-stakeholder solutions, including collaboration within industries and between industries. We heard earlier that investor action shouldn't be driven by regulation only. That said, we've also heard that regulation does instigate action. An effective regulatory environment can encourage investor collaborations on modern slavery and human trafficking that aim at best-in-class approaches to de-risking our investments and the market as a whole. Are investors indeed better together? Let's look at some examples. I'm Andrew Adams. I work for CCLA Investment Management as their Modern Slavery Project Lead. When I was looking at it, I couldn't help thinking that there was a, a big disparity between actually what we were seeing companies say about their supply chains and, and what I had been reading about from various academics, NGOs, journalists about what was happening at the grassroots of supply chains. There's still many, many different examples of bond slavery taking place in, in se sectors across the board. So in, in the production of raw materials, but also yeah in industrial processes and in service industries as well. So it's right across the board. Hence why we came up with the project Find It, Fix It, Prevent It, which is really saying to companies that best practice in this situation 
is finding examples of monster in your supply chain because we suspect that they're there in most, if not all, cases. So once you found it, making steps to provide remedy um, and restitution for the, the people involved, and then also working through the learnings of those examples that you found to, to seek to prevent it happening further. And we can't do that alone. CCLA is a kind of middle-sized asset manager in, in specifically the, the church, charity, and local authority space, so all not-for-profit money. And the investment industry is much, much bigger than us, so we thought we would work to, to bring kind of collaborative efforts to, to improve our leverage in this situation, to really increase the, the scope of what we can do. How do investors get involved with Find It, Fix It, Prevent It? There is a statement of support um, that investors can sign up to, and that requires very little of them other than going through their governance processes to to get sign-off for that. But beyond that, we've created three different working groups that focus on different elements of, of driving forward that collaborative action. So we have an engagement working group, so investors that are part of that group each agree to, to lead engagement with one company and to support their fellow investors on ideally one other company, but more if they have capacity. The other kind of ways investors can get involved, we've got a, a public policy working group. So that is focusing initially on UK public policy. There's been steps or a review of the Modern Slavery Act and, and the TISC provision, so the Transparency in the Supply Chain provisions has been underway and we've been feeding into that through a consultation response and then I've been involved in follow-up conversations with the Home Office in the UK around that and that continues and we're also looking at ways in which we can get involved in public policy more globally, particularly EU level, about how we can encourage the introduction of similar acts as we're seeing in Australia at the moment. And finally, there's a, a, a data working group. So we're looking to work collaboratively to improve the, the quality of data on modern slavery that we see, particularly uh, aligned with that question of, have you found modern slavery? If not, why not? And if so, what are you doing about it? And how are you providing remedy to those affected? Turning to the Asia-Pacific region, a similar investor collaboration has started to take shape. To shed some light on this, we have Kate Turner from First Centier Investors, whom you heard earlier. At FSI, we have 17 different teams, and they've been doing this for a very long time and have all developed their own ways of integrating ESG in a way that works for them and fits with their investment philosophy, which means that ESG integration looks very different from one team to the next. However, when it comes to systemic or cross-cutting issues like modern slavery that we know are going to impact across asset classes in different ways that will have an impact. We try to come together as investment teams to learn both from each other and from experts in the field about best practice and develop tools that the teams can use to help them to implement these considerations into their investment processes. And so with Modern Slavery, we have collaborated internally, but we really felt like this was an issue that could benefit from a broader industry collaboration and conversation, which is how we came to be involved in Investors Against Slavery and Trafficking APAC or IAST APAC. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about how Investors Against Slavery and Trafficking or IAST APAC came about? Sure. So for us, through our UK-based investment teams, we had a relationship with CCLA, the UK Charity Fund Manager. 
and they had also felt that modern slavery would benefit from this broader industry collaboration, hence why they set up Find It, Fix It, Prevent It, which was focused on engaging with UK companies. So CCLA approached us together with the other founding investors of ISA APAC to see if we'd be interested in setting something up similar in the APAC region, and we took it from there. We know that over half the world's victims of modern slavery are based in this part of the world. So companies here, as well as investors, are particularly exposed to this risk, but also in a unique position to address it. This is why IS APAC came together as an investor-led initiative, which was convened to engage with companies in this region in which we collectively invest to promote effective action amongst them to, like CCLA is doing, find, fix and prevent modern slavery labour exploitation and human trafficking within their operations and supply chains. We're trying to get as many investors as possible as involved as they can be in this conversation. And we really wanted it to be a forum where investors could come together to raise concerns systematically and consistently so they could create more meaningful change with companies, share knowledge and increase awareness of this issue. What differentiates Investors Against Slavery and Trafficking Asia-Pacific from other collaborative investor engagements on these issues? I know that you've already spoken with CCLA, but I think they've created a really meaningful platform for doing this that we're trying to leverage off. CCLA obviously has a lot of experience engaging on this issue, and you can see that in the engagement guidelines that they've put together. They've developed really, really good KPIs for assessing how well a company is addressing these risks based on their extensive experience. And we're taking those KPIs and adapting them to the APAC region and based on the experience that we have in this part of the world. So I think that's one differentiator. And then another differentiator, I think, comes from the fact that we have Walk Free and Fast as our knowledge partner. So as investors, we're not going into this blindly. We're going into this with a lot of support and guidance in terms of how a company is doing and how they could improve. In the first episode of the series, we heard about how the global pandemic has led to modern slavery and human trafficking risks going up for businesses and investors. This episode has explored how thinking about institutional investor engagements is actually evolving and where investors have started to come together to collaboratively engage companies to find and fix the risks rather than punishing them. The PRI has now developed a three to five year plan to support its 3,000 investor signatories representing 100 trillion in funds under management to embed consideration for human rights and by extension, modern slavery and human trafficking risks into their investment processes. So all of the work that we're going to be doing is underpinned by the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and by the OECD guidelines as well. So over the the next three years, next three to five years, we're going to support our signatories in putting human rights at the core of responsible investment. We really want to deliver a transformational contribution to the achievement of the SDGs and to our own 10-year plan, our own 10-year blueprint on responsible investment. The other thing that we're going to do as well as provide a lot of guidance is we're going to look at introducing signatory reporting that's specifically on human rights. So our aim is to first do this on a voluntary basis from January 2022. So you have to provide people with all the guidance to be able to do these things first. And then we would make it mandatory and public in 2023. 
And I think that that will really drive change. So my aim is that in five years, that human rights are like climate change, that all investors are considering them and they're embedding them into their investment process and they're reporting against them, even though they might be at different stages of the journey. And if you think back five years ago, many investors were not considering climate change at all. And if you look at where we are today, all investors are doing something. We have major initiatives like Climate Action 100+, plus, the biggest ever investor engagement on any issues, 450 investors involved, $47 trillion in assets under management, all with the same key us about investors and working in a very cohesive and coordinated way to make sure that the largest emitting companies are bringing about change, setting net zero commitments by 2050, reporting on their climate activities. And that we understand as investors the governance issues in terms of how is their board actually thinking about these issues? Because change doesn't come unless it's driven from the top. And I really hope that we will be able to do something similar in the human rights space in terms of a very major engagement within the next five years as well. The next episode of Fast the Podcast will move from institutional investor engagements to look specifically at the role of development finance. We will take you on a deeper dive into the work of multilateral development banks, development finance institutions, and export credit agencies in addressing modern slavery and human trafficking. In the meantime, visit us at fastinitiative.org, on Twitter, at Fincom Slavery or on LinkedIn's Fast Initiative profile. Please send us your feedback and suggestions by email to info at fastinitiative.org. And until next time, thanks for listening. This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.